Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. A gentle reminder that you can post your questions or comments on pigeonhole. The passcode is IPS-IMDA 26 July. We have now come to the final session of the symposium, a dialogue with our special guest, Senior Minister of State for the Ministry of Communications and Information and Ministry of Transport, Dr. Janil Putucheri. In 2018, SMS spearheaded the city's first digital readiness blueprint. SMS, please. Uh, thank you all for coming this afternoon. I've understood you've had an engaging and uh, robust series of discussions across the day. I, I look forward to your questions, and I hope we can uh, think of some of these solutions together. I thought I might uh, give you a sense of how I see the landscape, uh, some of our thinking behind uh, the interventions and programs we put in place, just to give a frame. But uh, I think we'll try and reserve most of the time for your questions. Uh, that's assuming that I have answers for your questions, which I may not always do so, in which case I'm sure my colleagues here in the front row will take all the difficult issues and answer them on my behalf. Um, my role looking at this, uh, going back, crosses from the public sector into the private sector, and I think it's worth thinking about the type of responses to digital readiness, digital society, uh, digital inclusion that you would expect from the public sector uh, and compare that to what you'd expect from the private sector. There are commonalities, uh, but they're not exactly the same, and, and nor should they be, and it's worth examining why that may be so. In dealing with this, I think if we roll back <coughs> our thinking and begin with uh, the why, uh, why are we concerned about this, uh, why is, has this become an issue, uh, why might we have to apply ourselves with some degree of seriousness to addressing this space. We have embarked on a journey of transformation that we're calling Smart Nation. In truth, in truth, this is not the first time that we are thinking in this way. This is not the first time that we're having to transform potentially our whole country, our economy, our society, our systems and processes of government and governance. Uh, it's not the first time that we've had to do this, and it's not the first time that we are doing this. Ever since independence, we have had a series of, well, you can call them threats, you can call them opportunities, you can call them changes, to which we have responded with essentially an ongoing of process of transformation over the last 54 years. And it is that commitment to being forward-looking, to adapting ourselves to the challenges and opportunities of the day as well as what we can see around the corner over the horizon adapting ourselves, that have, in a way, defined what the world sees us as today, a globalized, hyper-connected, forward-looking city-state country. And you can refer to any number of lists and rankings, and I would prefer not to. We should do these things on the basis of them being the right things to do for ourselves. Why have we had to do that? Partly because those success factors that have brought us here today, uh, being connected, being heavily invested in trade, and being an open economy, means that we are extremely exposed to forces of disruption and change occurring overseas. Uh, the kinds of businesses that set up here could easily locate elsewhere. There is no inherent value proposition. We have to create and recreate that value proposition. So when it comes to this current wave, on on the one hand, it's not new. 
But what is different is the speed and the pace of that transformation. And the reason I'm laying this out, putting on a little bit thick, is because when it comes to issues of inclusion, readiness, um, the passage of time very often helps with inclusion, integration. You allow some people to move first, take a little bit more of a risk, and then as time passes, the benefits are clear, the risk mitigation measures are clear, the social and moral obligation and the, the narrative behind that engages more and more people, and the process becomes more inclusive over time. But that's if you have time to give, if you have time to let the process play out. In this wave of digitally driven technology, fueled, smart nation-derived transformation, the pace of change is much faster. We're not talking about decades, we're not, certainly not talking about lifetimes. We're, we're talking about literally a handful of years when you have to reconsider what is the product, what is the platform, what are the risks. And you know, one very extant example of that is the issues of data and privacy. I and mean, we wouldn't have considered the extent to which these are security risks today compared to where they, we were just two or three years ago. So, we are not going to achieve that level of social inclusion and social integration just by waiting for it to happen, just by waiting for that moral stance, that social message, the, the idea of what the right thing is to do to permeate and have everybody engaged. Secondly, the other reason why we have to be a bit more deliberate and active around this is that there are real economic benefits. This is not merely about entertainment and leisure, it can be. But when we start thinking about our smart nation transformation, the starting position, the fundamental outcome that we're trying to achieve, the social good that we're trying to achieve, ultimately is creating economic opportunity for Singapore and Singaporeans. If that is so, then inclusion takes on a very different tone, that this now becomes important for access to economic opportunity across all of our society. You combine these two, a very rapid pace of change and an implication around economic inclusion. And the imperative to think about inclusion and readiness now is very, very different. And you, I hope I've argued myself to the point where there's a very clear role for not being laissez-faire, for not sitting back and hoping and waiting and sending out the right message. There's a very clear role to step forward and do something. For businesses, there is a cost associated with this. You design for full inclusion right up front. It means your software product is more expensive. You design your business process for full inclusion right up front. And, well, you have a manpower cost, a compliance cost, um, and, and some overheads. So we need to either apply regulatory pressure or we need to have pressure as customers to insist that they have a, a moral obligation, a social obligation to be as inclusive as possible if it is their products that we're using, either for economic reasons or for the entertainment, leisure, and social reasons that I've talked about. But we also have a duty as a state then to make sure that our services, increasingly government services and public sector services, will be delivered through these digital means. And so now if you have essential services where your access to these essential services is limited by your inclusion, your digital inclusion, then it becomes our obligation to make sure that we fix that problem. So I hope I've laid out the why, I hope I've laid out some of the moral imperatives. So how are we then dealing with this? We launched the digital government blueprint, um, where was it now? Last year, uh, last year. And, and in doing so, we brought together uh, a wide community of stakeholders. And, and, and I think this process of how we got the blueprint going 
uh, tells us about where the solutions might be. We brought together public sector officials, people working with VWOs, academics, but also the large technology companies and some small technology companies as well, people who had a business uh, at making these products. And if I can start with them, part of what we had to do was persuade them that it was good business to be inclusive. It was good business to be inclusive. If your product is something that people use every day, well, we hope to demonstrate that it is a socially uh, a conscious product. It's a product that engages the community in a productive way and that you as a technology giant, as a multinational company, see this to be so. You can attach your branding and your marketing to it. You can demonstrate your corporate social responsibility. But from our perspective, it means you then are in a position to engage as many citizens as possible. So make it part of their understanding that it is good business to drive digital inclusion. From the people sector, the VWOs, the academics who are studying this, we had to get quite a lot of information, granular level, iterative, repeated investigation as to who actually do we need to help. And it turned out repeatedly in our engagements that some of the people whom we thought were vulnerable actually were finding ways to cope already. Uh, and these include for some communities of persons with disabilities where there were already a suite of technology products or there were members of the community who had gone out to solve some of the inclusion uh, and perhaps did not need so much help from us. On the other hand, there was a clear need for, uh, from other groups of the community uh, which were excluded for other types of reasons. And this was very instructive. And I'll just lay out one, which is the issue around language. That when you had um, a digital space where most of the products were made in English, and you had an elderly generation who was largely not English speaking, it, they found it very hard to engage, especially if the products you're putting out there were also, uh, you know, uh, not the things that they do on a daily basis. And I give you one example. If you're focusing purely on healthcare, managing your appointments, managing your prescriptions and your illness, well, if you are a healthy and active 70-year-old, you have no interest in those types of digital products. And what you want to do is watch your Korean dramas and do your shopping and, uh, you know, check the... Uh, the gambling and so forth. Uh, so you need the products to be engaging with the, that community in order to drive digital inclusion, but you need to do so in the language with which they're comfortable. So we broke up our approach into digital access, digital literacy, and digital participation. Access meaning who has the tools to get on board, who has mobile phones, who has internet connectivity, who has a, a computer, and if they don't, what is the right way to provide them that access. And we can go into the specifics if you're interested, but generally speaking, we are a country with a very high mobile phone penetration rate, 150%, very large internet penetration rate, I think it's 80, 90% of homes, we can get you the numbers. But how do we close that gap? And it turns out that there's a combination of things. Firstly, keeping data costs low. So if you look at all the things that we're doing to drive and, and manage the telco market, one of the key issues is to increase competition so that the data costs are low. And I think a five gigabyte SIM card, only $20 less. Um, and it is relatively low for a city state like ours because that is a barrier for access. Secondly, providing access independently of ownership. So are there places that you can go to where for free you can get online? Um, you, know, and I'm, you know, you can go to coffee shops it's not technically free because you still have to buy their coffee and you know their $7 latte and then they give you the Wi-Fi password. Uh, but there are other places where you can go and completely for free get online. National Library Board, 
our community centers and a whole bunch of other community spaces where we, as the state, say providing access to the internet is a core part of the mission of that agency, access. Literacy, literacy is something that you can understand from a schooling point of view. So I'll be a place where everybody going through school will be able to come out and take maximal benefit from the internet age. Actually, today I am not so worried about the kids in school because they are, I mean, they are now the second generation digital natives and they are picking up these skills. They are learning things from YouTube that, you know, you, firstly, you can't even imagine. You never imagined that you would do this when you were in primary school. Um, but we do have to make sure that curriculum is well curated. A lot of our focus, however, does need to be people my age and older, the people who were not born in the time of the internet, who didn't think that walking around and texting at the same time was merely uh, a natural way of living. Um, and for these older people, we need a skills development framework, and that's exactly what we're doing. How do you provide people a, a, a series of workshops, uh, competencies, training courses, engagements, opportunities to develop those skills? That becomes digital literacy. But core to getting a good outcome from digital literacy is the third piece, which is participation. You can teach people the skills, but if in the next week after teaching them the skills, they don't do something with those skills, it's not a worthwhile effort at all. But if they do do something with the skills regularly, then they will make mistakes, they will improve, and over time, they will become very proficient with those tools. Participation, I think I alluded to this earlier on, you have to give people the things that they want to do online, not the things that you think they want to do online. And that's why it's very, very important to have the businesses come along as part of the digital inclusion message because they understand the way this market works far better because they have to make a profit from it. And providing them access to policy and governance so that they can shape this response and also allowing us to put some degree of social and moral obligation on them is a core part of our strategy. So we have a digital participation pledge we have some councils and some groups where we bring businesses together, partly so that they can size each other up and make sure that nobody is being disadvantaged by being the first mover. If anything, they are advantaged by being the first mover and they bring everybody along. Then you have interesting things that are online in the language that people are hoping to be, that they are comfortable in, so in the hope that then people will enjoy themselves and learn all the digital skills. Access, literacy, meaningful participation. Most people are not going online for government digital services. They're going online for all the fun, leisure, entertainment, shopping, uh, getting cars, getting trips, and so on and so forth. And so we have to focus our efforts there. But behind all this, we have to make sure our government digital services are right up there and top notch. Otherwise, we don't have a moral standing to go and berate the companies to do what we hope that they do. And so we have some work in order to make sure government digital services are as inclusive as possible. We have to lead the way to show people how this can be. So that's how I've been thinking about it. My sense is that we have made quite a lot of progress in just a couple of years. The programs are running, NLB, community centers, the Smart Nation Office is doing things, IMDA is doing things, and we're doing it together with a whole long list of partners. Uh, many of our educational institutions are coming on board as well. There are a lot of people who are being uh, engaged, being exposed to some of these ideas. I think we're making progress because we continue to see people rolling out products and charging for them. And across the spectrum of age, ability, language, uh, cultural background, people are willing to pay 
pay for this, pay for that. And so that means they see value, the businesses see value, activity is happening. We've got to keep an eye on it, but I think we are, we are moving, we're making progress. And I think one of the third, third point in terms of making progress, the conversations that we're having now are no longer about how, uh, uh, no longer about should we be doing digital transformation? Should we be doing smart nation? Should we be accelerating the technology development pace? Should we be teaching everybody about this? We, we, have, we have much less concern about that. Now it's about, as you're doing it, please make sure everybody comes along. And slowing down, going back to pen and paper, pretending that somehow we can push the rest of the world away is now no longer top of mind at all. People have accepted that we do have to accelerate the transformation and be part of the transformation. So I think in these three ways, we have made significant progress around these ideas of digital inclusion. The work is not done. It may never be done with every latest, greatest product. You've got to rethink about how you do this. Uh, and so being able to get together with people like yourselves and answer questions, no doubt uh, we will have an opportunity to think through how we can do better and how we can do better going forward. Uh, and we will have to do so in partnership with the community. This is not something that anybody can do on their own. So I'm going to stop there, and I uh, look forward to all of your questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, SMS. The chairperson for this session is Professor Lim Sun-Sun. She is Head of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences at the Singapore University of Technology and Design. Prof Lim is also a nominated Member of Parliament, where she raises many pertinent issues, including the impact of digitalization on society. So, very good afternoon to everyone, and a big thank you to Dr. Janil for his um, highly uh, illuminating as well as succinct introduction to the issues around digital inclusion. And um, I think you've had tremendous food for thought today, and I felt that his wrap-up was really um, wonderful in terms of how it brought together the different uh, threads that you've discussed today, and also the, the very interesting contributions that we've heard from people from the private sector and the public sector. So, I did want to just um, pick up on a few points that I feel um, you helped to infuse the discussion with and I really liked that you talked about how when we look at transformation and we talk about this move towards smart nation that Singapore's experience with transformation has been rich we have always been looking at the whole business of change and I was very struck by what you said because a couple of days ago I made the time to read uh, Mr. Go Chok Tong's biography Tall Order and his book uh, took me through all of the different policies that were introduced when I was a teenager growing up when he was Prime Minister. And um, I realized that so much of the engineering and the design that has gone into making Singapore today what it is, is also that same DNA that allows us to deal with challenges like digitalization, like digital disruption. So indeed, we should not have a presentism mindset where we just think about what we're doing now, but we look at it against the backdrop of Singapore's development. Now, um, the other thing I wanted to highlight was, of course, how you very nicely outlined the three issues, which are access, literacy, and of course, meaningful participation. And so um, one of the whole issues with um, inclusion, obviously, is we've moved beyond access, but how do we now make sure that people not only have the literacies, but they've got the right literacies, and not just the right literacies, but enduring literacies, enduring literacies that will actually see them through the test of time, 
through each technological wave. Because, you know, when I was reading um, Kai-Fu Lee's AI Superpowers, and he was talking about the four waves of AI, from internet AI to business AI to uh, perceptive AI and then to autonomous AI, you're basically looking at more and more technological transformations that our workforce have to be prepared for. So that, again, is something that um, all inclusion uh, initiatives should seek to cover. So, um, one final thing I wanted to point out is I found this particular conference really refreshing because of the buzz that I feel. I come into the institute and I see all of these people downstairs, they're learning skills, they're trying out digital technologies, and then here we are in the room looking at you know, the long-term perspective, looking at the challenges, and then you go out again and then you get energized by looking at all these aunties and uncles trying out digital platforms and so on. So there's a really nice convergence of energy here in this building, and I think it reminds us that this whole mission of social inclusion and digital inclusion is a very critical one. So um, just to kick off the questions, I'm sure there are many questions coming in, but I'll just use the uh, moderator's prerogative to ask the first question, which is you made a very important point about how um, social inclusion and digital inclusion is essentially a process that needs time. And um, indeed, when we look at initiatives like today's programs and so on, they're really impressive. They bring people in. I'm curious about what we can do to make these efforts a little bit more sustainable and systematic so that it's not just a case of the auntie coming in to try the digital platform today to get her free curry puff and then after that she never uses it again, right? So, so how can we think more um, meaningfully about making digital inclusion efforts sustainable? Thank you. It's a, it's a good question and I think it also... Um, uh, allows us to think about some of the differences in this space compared to other efforts in inclusion that we make. And what do I mean by that? Um, the, the access, literacy, participation, the engagement in this space is potentially also the solution for the sustainability of this effort going forward. What do I mean by that? If you have, let's say, the elderly, the seniors, who are not digitally engaged, you, you find a way for them to get engaged either tr through training, group participation, something at library board, something at the community center. And part of that engagement results in their comfort in using just a handful of products. Uh, a messaging product, a social media product, and some kind of browsing information content product. Just three products. Then those products actually are what we can then leverage on for further sustained engagement going forward. You don't need then subsequently to bring them back to the CC every time, the library board every time, in order to then learn about the next wave if they've been sufficiently engaged. The information carrying and engagement capacity of the digital technology may well in itself provide us the means for sustaining this effort long into the future, if we design it correctly. So that is why you then need that framework around what is the core competencies you need in order to engage in this space. And uh, one of them has to be how then to use digital technology to seek out more information myself. That, that must be at the center of the competencies that we're trying to build. That's one. The second thing that I the thing that, that I think we can um, uh, rely on in terms of sustainability is that part of that process of digital engagement makes them also become digital customers. I mean, and, and, and so again, that's one of the reasons why having businesses understand that putting that effort in earlier on, contributing, whether it's donating in kind or the way they design their product, ultimately over the long term is a business case for them. These are potentially customers to them. And so it makes it 
viable for them to participate alongside us rather than just uh, this being something that government is pushing all the time. I think those two things actually give me quite a lot of hope that these will be sustained efforts provided we get off, get off to the right start. Yeah. And it also relates to what you said earlier about how inclusiveness can actually be made profitable. And once companies have that incentive, they will put in extra efforts. Yeah, I must say, I'm going to use myself as an example. I'm not sure I, I'm anywhere near being a digital senior, you know, but... <laughs> So just to bring you up to speed, in the last session, people over 45 were promoted to young seniors. Oh man, okay. <laughs> okay, young senior, all right. Um, so books, you know, I love bookshops and I grew, up, I grew up without the internet, right? So I remember going online, I remember dial-up modems, I remember getting my first phone. And long before that, uh, you know, for me, the, my, my natural ecosystem was either a bookshop or a library, you know, just to be surrounded by books was a joy for me. And I like buying books, I like reading books. And so uh, I took a long, long time before I started reading books online. I, I mean, I'm you know, fairly tech savvy, and I, and I, but it, I held on to it as an emotional thing, that this was something that I liked to do. But once I became very uh, con conversant with many of the other technology products, it's actually a very short hop to start reading things online. Uh, National Library Board's app or the Kindle and so on and so forth. But it is that process. No one had to make me take that step. I took it myself because of all the engagement that I had. Uh, I must say there was a little flutter of concern the first time I bought a book online, you know, because I was, would have been one of those people to say that we must preserve the paper and we must go down to the bookshop and so forth. But that ease of access, and, in, and again, I remember it, it was a book that I couldn't find in the bookshop uh, and, you know, had to be ordered from overseas. Uh, caused me a little flutter of concern that I was contributing to the decline of the bookshop. But having engaged in that process, I also have the ability to now go back to the bookshop and go back to the real world library as uh, something I enjoy. And you can do both. Uh, so I, I think it's something which will play out in a rather productive way over time and my personal experience would suggest that that is so. Indeed, some publishers have told me that um, e-books have actually improved their print book Absolutely. sales. So, um, we're going to be taking questions from the floor. Dr. Janil has expressed his preference for unmediated questions. So, if you have questions, please raise your hands. Um, I do know that we also have the pigeonhole service. Um, it is quite cute, actually, the pigeonhole um, logo. It looks like a pigeon that's trapped in some digital maze. But I'm sure Dr. Janil will, will guide us out of that maze, will guide that pigeon. Um, so, so, would anyone be interested to ask the first question, please? Ah, yes, please. Thank you. SMS, thanks. Uh, what do you see as the biggest risk of very pervasive digital inclusion? Well, the biggest risk for... Uh, in general, the, the biggest risks are going to be around security and privacy. And um, uh, that applies to everybody. But if we... If we take the approach that we have to be 100% uh, inclusive, then one of the protections against that vulnerability is lost. What do I mean by that? Um, if we are a little bit laid back about this and we say, look, we let the market work, we take a laissez-faire approach, um, what will happen is the people who are technologically savvy, uh, 
engage in this space will also tend to be the people that are a bit more able to protect themselves. Now, I, I wish you were absolutely, I mean, you know, just because you're a digital native doesn't mean you always take the precautions and the protections. And sometimes when you're uh, fearful about going online, you can be paranoid in a good way so that you protect yourself. But the, by taking a very proactive, inclusive space, then in the parlance of the cybersecurity experts, you increase the threat surface. You increase the opportunities for something going wrong. Someone to, either on the issue of security, privacy, or being hacked, and so on and so forth. I don't think that is a reason to hold back. I think that is a reason that we need to take a different posture around security and privacy, and we need to be upfront at making sure that our uh, design process takes into account security and privacy alongside inclusion, and we think about security and privacy in an inclusive way. Um, but I think that will be the biggest risk. Uh, I think if you are in other jurisdictions and you say, well, you know, we'll go with the capital city first, the rest of the country can follow later, we'll go with you know, the early adopters, the people who are coming from an academic background, you, you can take a little bit more laid back approach to the security and privacy. But I think if we are saying inclusion by design, everybody move together, move as one society, then our approach to security and privacy has, frankly speaking, has to be a bit more paranoid because that will be the greatest risk. So I did want to um, highlight one of the questions that relates to this one from the pigeonhole, and I think it's quite a meaningful question. As accessibility and inclusion tools, no, sorry, are accessibility and inclusion tools improving accessibility or doing the opposite? Digital transformation may create layers of customization which make it hard to make things accessible. That's an excellent question. Um, but I'm sorry, that, that horse has already bolted. Uh, and what do I mean by that? When you access your news feed, your Facebook news feed, your Twitter news feed, nobody else has exactly the same experience. You, your, the experience that you have interacting on that social media platform, like many other uh, Web 2.0 platforms, is already extremely customized for you and your experience. Amazon, shopping, etc., etc. So that idea that we have a great global commons and that everybody is participating with exactly the same experience, has passed several years ago. We have a global commons. Should we choose to engage in that space in a way that makes it a global commons or a public commons? But actually, the default setting is a very narrow cast experience particular to you and your preferences and your biases. We have to break past that. So when it comes to the issue of inclusion, you're right that if we have now a process to uh, use different technologies, different platforms, different processes in order to include people, those could be fragmentary in nature. They could say, well, your experience looks like this, my experience looks like that, um, and we, we are then therefore separate. We're going through the experience separately. So first point I would make is that if we do nothing, that's already happening. Secondly, if the content is the same, if the information is the same, and the outcome is the same, then having us arrive at those same outcomes through different processes may not be such a bad thing, and it may be a useful compromise. If ultimately, both of us now know, through different means, that there is going to be a really exciting seminar, IPS, IMDA, Digital Inclusion Seminar, we'll turn up to the same place and we'll have a conversation. Even though I got that information through email and you got it through a Facebook flyer, or I had it through one means and you had it through the other means. So I think it is something to pay attention to because, not for the reason that it doesn't exist or that it's necessarily a bad thing, but what it shouldn't be is one set of providers and one set of businesses accesses 
for example, the people with disability, a very different set of businesses, a very different set of providers access the English-speaking world, a very different set of people access the Mandarin-speaking world, and then you will not have the commonality of outcome and coming together at the other end. We actually have to have the providers and solution makers be coherent in de delivering the content together. Then I think we'll be able to deal with some of this problem. But I, do I don't think it's entirely avoidable. It's already happening today. So, yes, please. Good afternoon. I'm a fellow of the Asia Journalism Fellowship here in Singapore from the Philippines. I was just wondering what is, uh, how is Singapore addressing fake news, which is an offshoot of the digital inclusion that the world is experiencing right now? Thank you. Yeah, one of my favorite subjects. Uh, <laughs> So the base, the fundamental, um, the starting position is, uh, do we need to deal with misinformation and disinformation in an active way? Or is this a problem that's going to solve itself? And I would argue that it's something that you need to deal with actively in order for these products, these platforms, to be able to play a meaningful role in public discourse. If, the, if you were worried that the newspaper uh, was ex uh, untrustworthy, you wouldn't buy it, you wouldn't pick it up. If you were worried that the, the particular channel was uh, untrustworthy, you would click past it immediately. And similarly, if you have digital products, digital platforms, social media feeds, which where you as a citizen cannot trust at some level the information that you receive, you're going to stop using it, you're going to stop engaging with it, and you're going to stop contributing to it. So firstly, in order for these these internet spaces, these digital services, to fulfill their, you know, when they, were, when they were all first written and first conceived of, there was a very utopian view that the world was going to be flat, information was going to be free, and everybody was going to be happy. Um, but I think we're, we have been largely disabused of that utopian view because people have tried to exploit and weaponize the space. But if we can push in the other direction to preserve some of those ideals of of trustworthy, honest engagement, people will continue to engage and use these products. So that, I think, is the starting position. Then, what is it going to take in order for us to deal with misinformation and disinformation? The first has to be that the person reading it has the tools and the ability to think critically about the information that they're getting. So it begins with education, it begins with media literacy, but it also has to continue with education and continue with media literacy. That this is not something we deal only in the schools, but something we deal with for the adult population as well. And so that for our strategy, the engagement of our National Library Board, our community centers, our People's Association, all the IMDA partners to think of media literacy in a very broad sense across our population is a key part of our strategy. Second key part is that the media industry itself, journalists, publishers, editors, need to have the capability to deliver quality news and quality information. And this is not just about the people who d deal with news for profit, the government communication services, the academic communication services, your institutes of higher learning, need to be able to engage with the public in a way which comes across meaningfully, which is uh, emotionally connecting the way they want it to be, and communicates useful information. They have to see value for it. And then, at the other end of the extreme, you need some kind of regulatory space for uh, regulatory tools for when something goes wrong in this space. And so we've 
we have a number of uh, tools and, and laws, the most recent of which which attracted the news was, of course, the Online Falsehoods Manipulation Act, uh, which was uh, passed in Parliament recently, which we haven't, uh, uh, I think, hasn't been operationalized yet, hasn't been, the law hasn't come into force yet. But that will be merely one small tool in this whole spectrum of issues that we have to deal with. But it is important to give a marker at the end of the spectrum where you have egregious uh, material that is dangerous to the public. And people need to know that they can be protected against that, uh, that degree of manipulation, so that the rest of the space is open for us to fight and argue about what our opinions are, what, whether this is funny or whether it's not funny, whether this is worthwhile or not worthwhile. So that's the, the foundation is literacy. Anchoring the border is a set of laws and tools and the willingness of the state to intervene. And in between is public responsibility. And that's how I'd scope it out. So indeed, the whole business of digital literacy is the multi-dimensionality of it all. So um, are there any other questions from the floor? Or while, while you're thinking, I actually wanted to highlight this um, rather pertinent question that um, I feel will really sort of um, be an interesting point of engagement, and that's to do with discrimination. Um, so this um, question asks, how can digital technology be used to reduce discrimination in the employment of the marginalized and those aged over 40 who may have difficulty finding employment? Indeed, um, you, it is an important issue. And giving people the skill sets to be engaged will be a fundamental uh, way in which we can deal with that. I mean, you, you, we are fortunate in Singapore that um, we have uh, market opportunities for jobs greater than the labor available. And what we have is uh, you know, a skills mismatch. So if we can have adequate training, adequate ability to give people the skills, then they will be able to take advantage of the opportunities that are there. Um, but you, you can't pretend that uh, everybody is equally ready for every job. I mean, it does require training. I mean, if you look at manual jobs, things that require physical strength, you couldn't, for example, make the case that everybody can do that manual job because not everybody has the same physical strength. And the same is going to be true for digitally engaged jobs. You, you need the skill sets. So we have to find ways to provide them with the skill sets. What is interesting for us on this journey, especially when we look at partners from around the world, is the extent to which our uh, labor movement is a proactive advocate for this. In many par parts of the world, labor unions, the labor movement, the people who see it as their role to stand up for the workers' um, economic opportunities are pushing back against digitalization, pushing back against the technology, pushing back against transformation, and basically taking the view that you have, keep things exactly as they are today or go back to yesterday and everything will be okay. Not realizing, of course, that the jobs will be offshored and we move to locations which are far more progressive. We are one of those locations. And it's very important that it has happened. Our unions, the unionists, the union leadership, the labor movement is proactive about this. They are coming and thinking through what are the digital competencies required. They are setting up their own training facilities, their own training courses, so that they can be a provider of skills to help their members and their unionists transform faster than everybody else. And they are engaged in this and thinking, well, 
if I accelerate the change, what new jobs will be created? And ultimately, that is going to create opportunity and reduce discrimination. Second point is that um, the use of data, uh, and especially data to drive transparency, will be one of the tools for us to be able to think through discrimination, so that we can look and see at uh, what are the outcomes, either at the hiring or the performance or the, you know, the job disposition. And that requires data. And we will not be able to have that kind of confidence if we're not uh, producing and collecting that data. So um, it's a threat because there may be this sort of a differential opportunity on the basis of your age. It's an opportunity to put together some training packages, some skills, future readiness packages, uh, some capability and competence development. And in itself, the, the technology is part of the solution so that we have sight of what's happening in our market. I hope you don't mind me asking this question. So uh, the digital readiness blueprint right, is, uh, is very comprehensive. SMS, is there one area in the whole blueprint that you wish government would move a lot faster on? And I use government broadly. It could be part of the ministries or parts, parts of, of, of government. But if they move a lot faster, it would really move the needle on the, the readiness blueprint. Um. Yeah, only one. <laughs> we have to move fast on all of them, you know. We've got to make a push. I, I don't think this is a problem where there is a single rate-limiting step, a single barrier to entry, or a single factor of success. I think by their nature, by, by the nature of this space, it is a series of interlocking mechanisms. Um, if we moved uh, aggressively on, for example, language translation services, but didn't get the user interface correct, uh, didn't get the business, the regulatory environment correct, actually we'll get nowhere. We'll spend a lot of money and people turn around and say they didn't achieve very much. And, and the opposite is true as well. You know, we could stand up a whole bunch of uh, uh, applications which maybe meet all the perfect uh, criteria for uh, access standards, but didn't also do some, some translation, we wouldn't uh, get very far. Um, so I, I I think the key issue is firstly, does government take it seriously enough or not? As far as our, our role within the digital readiness blueprint. Taking it seriously, I think, well, you know, um, from a public sector point of view, it starts by making someone responsible for it. <laughs> that has been settled, confirmed already. We know who is responsible, and most of them are in this room today already. <laughs> so th there's a level of seriousness there. Uh, second, it's committing to some KPIs and timelines, which is exactly what the blueprint has done. And then it's marshalling the resources to deliver on some of these things. And that is what we are in the midst of doing, is persuading a whole bunch of people and resources to be, to be marshalled around this. Um, one of the uncertain things, I must say, as we navigate the space, is how many of the problems are going to solve themselves over time. And uh, it turns out that a fair number are, are shaping up to be solved either by the market or because they are just no longer a problem and they drop off. And so people will create applications uh, for access by the hearing impaired community or the visually impaired community or uh, translate them into different products and so forth, um, uh, different languages and so forth. Um, and so some of these problems will improve, uh, but the reality is then new technology will come along and we will have to reconsider. Um, 
for the government, I think uh, it if the, if I'm going to try and answer your question because it's always very rude as a politician when we make a concerted effort to not answer someone's question. Um, if there was one thing that I think we can we can perhaps um, uh, do better, do faster, do more of, but it's it's tough, which is why we are not doing enough of it at this point in time. There are some of these access and inclusion issues where the only solution is to put a person there. You know, they, that you, it's not about designing another app or coming up with some uh, bundle with a telco. You actually just need a public sector officer to sit down and say, come, let me help you log on, or let me help you uh, sort out these issues. So the manpower intensive part. <coughs> we have started this with our Tech Connect Tech Connect Kakis, right? Tech Connect Centers. Basically, at our CCs, we've we started this pilot program, and the PA has come on board, and we're training a lot of people to do this. And basically, it's a recognition that for some problems and some people, the only way to deal with this is really to put some officer, usually a young officer who's digitally savvy, there and help them solve the problem. And then this might be a recurring thing, and that anti. Jess is never going to be able to remember her password for NLP. I mean, it just can't be helped. And every time, you've got to come back and do it. And that's the solution that you have to put in place. So that's not something that can be solved by a sweeping policy or a sweeping investment. It's a, it's a very operational thing, and you've got to have the right uh, public sector officials who are, have the skill. And thankfully, we do have some significant interest among our public sector officials. And we also have a volunteer base of activists that are going to help us to do this. Um, and I think if we can do that bit better, if we can do that bit better, it will give the people who are most at risk of being excluded, most at risk of being marginalized, most at risk of thinking you will never have a solution for me, we will be able to give them the reassurance, somehow we'll solve your problem, even if I don't have an app that will solve your problem, I've got a person that will solve your problem for you. So I think if we can do that to cross the bridge uh, and do that uh, as best we can, I think that would be very important. So, um, true confessions, I'm one of those aunties who forgot my NLB password and then I couldn't renew my books, it was so frustrating. So anyway, um, uh, you mentioned very importantly the whole issue of resources and um, obviously when we think about the resources today that are powering AI, data is the ultimate resource. So the other day I was in another conference with a bunch of data scientists and I asked them, you know, I said, you know, do you think that Singapore, the population doesn't create enough of a critical mass of data that can allow you to really refine your algorithms? And their point to me was Singapore may not have as much data as say Jakarta or China, but Singapore has very good quality data. And um, on this note, there are very many uh, votes for one particular question pertaining to the data that the government has been able to collect on our population. So the question asks that the government keeps uh, large volumes of data, some of which are still not readily available to businesses. So um, what can you say about the kinds of openness rega regarding um, data that the government is holding and whether it's receptive to the idea of sharing some of this data for uh, private sector partnerships? Of course, provided you follow the rules. Now, what are the rules? Well, um, one of those uh, issues is the issue of uh, anonymity, identity, and permissions from the citizen. So when the citizen gives us data which is identified, which is specific to him or her or their household, they did not do so in order for a business to sell them targeted products. They did so so that we as government 
can deliver services to them, deliver services better for them, and it, sometimes for security and privacy reasons. So if you go into partnership with a, an organization or a business, one level is anonymized, de-identified data that give you some insights about how things work in the world. But really, that's only one level. And if you're in the business of data, you know that identity is actually where the real value is. But we can't do that. I mean, we can't bypass the consent process. We can't go and collect data for one purpose and then give it to you for another purpose. Second issue is one of parity. You, you want us to give you data, then I will have to give to your competitors as well. What's so special about your business that you must take the state-derived resource, which if you describe it that way, and then give it to one business in order for that business to achieve profit. I mean, again, you, you would say that's not really very fair. So anonymized data, accessible to the general uh, public as well as all businesses that, are, that, are, that are, have an interest, actually this is already happening. And we have a very big effort, data.gov.sg. And so usually in various engagements, people put this question to me. I ask them, what is the data set that you're looking at for? And when they give me the answer and I say, you're, you're talking about a de-identified, anonymized, fully secure, private, you can't re-identify individual citizen and, you know, number of hotel uh, occupancy, tourist arrivals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I say, have you checked data.gov.sg? And the answer is no. And when you do, you will see lots of the data that's there. But as I say, the people who are in this business know that the reason why that data can be given out and made transparent and made open is because the real value to them as a business is data that is identifiable and hence there is a problem for government to just willy-nilly make that transparent and shareable. Actually, we have a duty to protect the citizen and that's what we are trying to do. So I would summarize by saying, look, quite a lot of publicly available data is publicly available, uh, publicly collected data is transparent and available back to the public, including businesses, but it is anonymized, de-identified. It's on data.gov.sg. We've put quite a lot of effort into uh, putting more and more data that's out there because we do think it's essential for people to have access to this kind of information, develop their business, develop their services. Secondly, we can't piecemeal decide, I'm gonna give it to this business or that business. That's a problem because there's value to be extracted. People are making profit out of it, and we'd have to be fair. And thirdly, our fundamental mission in terms of dealing with the data is to protect citizens' security and privacy. And in our relationship to business, we've got to make sure that, that is maintained. Questions? So related to that, um, I'd like to take this opportunity to ask you um, with big tech, for example. And big tech obviously has the upper hand in terms of collecting and aggregating so much data. And there are people like Victor Meyer Schoenberger who have said that, you know, we cannot overly privilege the incumbents. We must think about some um, data tax or some kind of requirements that we can impose on big tech companies to share their data so that it's not anti-innovation, so that the new players can also have um, a chance at using that data to think about new um, innovations that will be societally uh, beneficial. What, what's your take on that? Indeed, and you have to do it maintaining the principles that are articulated in the previous question. And we have got some examples. So if you look at, for example, the transport sector, just because of my other hat that I wear in the Ministry of Transport, that's exactly what we do. Where you are able to aggregate, safely aggregate, de-identify, 
and make publicly available data that is so anonymous that it, the citizen can't then be subsequently re-identified, you can impose it as a regulatory requirement on the people who are within the space. Then, as you rightly point out, it removes one barrier uh, for entry to innovation and new companies coming in. But you can't do it to the point where you completely remove the competitive edge of the incumbent. Otherwise, you know, this is anti-business. Um, so you have to get that right. You firstly have to articulate a clear public good. Secondly, you have to be able to assure both yourself as well as the public that you can do so, maintaining the privacy and security as necessary. And thirdly, that this isn't some kind of uh, uh, false commitment to transparency. If the only way that you can extract value from this data layer that you are producing is if you're already a tech giant, then I mean you have achieved absolutely nothing by, by making the claim to transparency. It has to be usable in a form if you're a, you know, a startup and a small business as well, to a point where uh, value is created. So it is an approach that we are willing to consider, and I would say we have done some examples. Uh, if you've used the My Transport app or even Google Maps, Waze, all this is relying on data that is coming through LTA. Uh, and, and this is a great example of how you have transport data made publicly available, and you know that in Singapore, there are a whole bunch of digital products currently where people have made their business on top of a layer of data that we, the state, have provided. And they are charging for it. They're charging for the app, they're charging for the service, some of the mobility services. And we're okay with that because it meets the tests that I laid out in the prior answer. The security and privacy of the individual citizens is maintained. The data is available to everybody. Natalie, please. Well. So I think uh, we've, um, you know, more and more data is actually um, um, actually made available. There is also this risk of uh, uh, security and also increasingly, as we see in the last few years, um, cyber attacks. Um, um, you know, and US, we had that incident as well where um, servers were being attacked and so on. So I, my question to SMS is, uh, what, what do you think uh, and how do you think uh, Singapore can also, um, in a forward-looking, uh, I guess, approach, um, look at uh, ways to better protect ourselves um, against all these attacks? Well, some of the significant part of this is uh, being dealt with under the Public Sector Data Security Review Committee chaired by SMTO. We, we gave an interim report not very long ago about some of the technical measures, but there'll be a final report towards the end of the year that will detail the very wide suite of things that we're doing. So I'm not going to go so much into that currently, but I would argue that uh, the, the key thing to hold on to is that Turning back the clock, firstly, can't happen, but isn't going to help us here. The uh, commercially available products are already generating more and more and more data. So to somehow suggest that what the government does or what the state does should not go along those same lines actually then removes the ability for us to use those tools to provide services that are of use to people. What we have to do is then apply regulatory standards across. For the private sector, we are reviewing the Personal Data Protection Act. The committee that I talked about looks at what's happening within the public sector. How do you secure government and public sector services? But we're also reviewing the Personal Data Protection Act. We've had a number of public and industry consultations over the last few months. Um, the 
the fundamental premise of what government does and what the private sector does around data security is different. When it comes to the private companies, and we've alluded to this, the big tech companies, there is profit to be made. And so actually we want to make sure that they pay close attention to their own responsibility within an organization and not share data too freely because when they do so, the cost is the individual citizen's uh, privacy and security. Uh, for the public sector, in order for us to deliver government services, you need the different government agencies to share data. You, you know, the, the simple phrase, no wrong door policy. What does no wrong door policy mean in 2019? In 2019, you cannot have a no wrong door policy unless the government agency whose door you knocked on can share your data with the other government agency whose services that you need. And now that just doesn't, that thinking just doesn't exist in the private sector. So what you need is an approach which is strict but appropriate. Public sector needs to have these standards and these expectations. Private sector needs to have these standards and these expectations. And then refresh it over time using the best practices, assuming that technology has to advance and we have to advance with technology. And that's our approach. So just to close the discussion and bring it um, closer back to the whole theme of digital inclusion, um, I wanted to just highlight one very popular question here, which is there's an interesting um, thrust of around inclusion of communities of special needs, elderly and marginalized communities. But what about inclusion of industries that cater to these marginalized industries? So I guess they're looking at um, industries that provide um, services for special needs, that provide uh, training, that provide, you know, um, so the social enterprises that provide employment. Um, so I think they're looking at how can we be more inclusive of these industries that help these marginalized communities. So you can approach this from two directions. One is you approach it as an IT problem. And, and we do have funds, the, I think it's, the, it's called the IT Enable Fund. Uh, enable IT, IT Enable, uh, yeah. Uh, which is how do you then use the IT infrastructure and fund social enterprises, organizations, uh, partners, to be able to provide access through persons with disabilities. But actually you can do it in the other direction as well, where you, you see this as a fundamental enabling issue. And I know SG Enable does quite a lot of work on this, and not from an ICT perspective. To them, this is something they have to do because of the outcome that is available to the people that they serve. That they have to be able to help the social enterprises, help people get online or access digital products. So I think you can approach this from both directions, and people are working in Singapore quite hard to, to do this. Um, and there are a lot of good examples that are out there. The, the issue with the social enterprises, of course, is that um, you, you are not going to be able to make a very good business case. There's not a lot of profit to be made. That's why it has to be a social enterprise. Um, and I think that's why the level of awareness that we can raise and the engagement of the community that we can raise around this issue, that this is a worthwhile and morally appropriate thing to do. It is not something we can merely leave to business and the market will drive this. This is something we have to intervene in order to provide that level of access. Is important. This is not something that you want to do behind the scenes quietly, go and uh, get the right policies and regulatory levers in place and uh, uh, spend the money and, and, and do the research. Actually, this is something which you've got to go out there into the community, beat the drum, put the banner up there, you know, take the Wi-Fi, put on social media, and keep telling people that this is something we have to keep pushing at precisely because there is a social outcome that we need to drive, and social enterprises need to be given that assistance. So, 
Right, thank you. So um, I think you've all, um, like me, had a very invigorating day here, and um, particularly with this last session, we've had the privilege of Dr. Janil, SMS for MCI, as well as Ministry for Transport, um, engage with our questions, leaving no questions unanswered, um, and um, talking about this important t topic of digital inclusion. So please join me in giving him a big hand. Thank you, SMS and Prof Lim. May I now invite Dr. Pang to give the closing remarks. Thank you. Um, thanks, everyone. Uh, I'll keep my remarks brief. I think today we had uh, benefited from the many perspectives shared at this uh, first uh, symposium on digital inclusion organized by IPS and IMDA. Uh, I learned many things. Um, I heard many new terms, useful usage, designing for the age, um, digital chasms, just to name a few. And also learned the term young senior. <laughs> I think we'll all go home with that. Um, it, it inspired me to um, start creating a glossary, which is now on my Evernote, right? Um, but I just want to leave you with a few, I guess, uh, points that uh, I think uh, we can go back and reflect on. I think um, one of the things that has come through um, the many panels and dialogues today is that Partnerships are important. We need multiple stakeholders to engage each other in partnerships. We need more of everything, more voices, more research, more partnerships and practices. Uh, we also have, um, in the last panel, um, before the dialogue session, the idea of the digital marketplace connecting not just digital services providers, but also social service providers with communities. I think that idea came from coming from HP. Um, and I guess the other second point is about how digital inclusion is not just a global issue, but very much a localized concern. So together as a society, we need to think about and identify what this means um, for our, in our context. Um, I think in the last uh, dialogue session, there is this um, uh, important point about the regulation. Um, and that's something we also heard through uh, the many sessions today regulations in terms of how it can not just protect the rights of individuals um, uh, and the privacy of individuals, but also be minimal enough to encourage innovation and support the market. Um, more importantly, I think this part of the part of this journey is also very much about reflecting on and questioning our fundamental assumptions um, about why we're doing this um, and how we are going to undertake this journey on digital inclusion and the, our, how our assumptions shape our practices. So I think the few points I mentioned really doesn't do justice to the richness of the debates today. Um, but I just want to uh, say that uh, and, and also thank everyone that has actually made this important symposium uh, possible. I think you will all agree with me we've had a very enriching time. So um, first and foremost, I'd like to thank the admin team um, at IPS, uh, namely Regine and Seling, um, who have actually worked tirelessly behind the scene. Thank you very much for your hard work. I'd also like to thank our colleagues Jenny, Chin and Carol uh, from IMDA, who have been working with us for the past few months um, in putting together this symposium. But last but not least, to our speakers for generously sharing your time, experiences and knowledge with us. So please join me in thanking them as well. Thank you.